Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. We will conclude the book of Jeremiah, our study, uh, this evening by looking at different portions of chapters 50 and 51. 52, the final chapter, is a summation of, of what we have been studying and gives us further dates and historical information to the content of the book as a whole. The end of the book comes as the end of many things come, with a flurry of information, colorful images and language, and of course the power of God being revealed. But it boils down really to a simple principle. What you sow, you reap. And Babylon has sown the wind, and now must reap the whirlwind. So let me read from chapter 50, beginning at verse 1, reading through verse 28. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans, by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation. And none shall dwell in it, both man and beast shall flee away. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them were devoured by them. And their enemies have said, We are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as male goats before the flock. For behold... I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered, and all who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be an utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. Set yourself in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered, her bulwarks have fallen, her walls are thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, do to her as she has done. Cut off from Babylon the sower and the one who handles the sickle in time of harvest. Because of the sword of the oppressor, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land, as I punish the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. 
In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Go up against the land of Marathiam and against the inhabitants of Pekad. Kill and devote them to destruction, declares the Lord, and do all that I have commanded you. The noise of battle is in the land in great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth is cut down and broken. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. I set a snare for you, and you were taken, O Babylon, and you did not know it. You were found and caught because you opposed the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and brought out the weapons of his wrath. For the Lord God of hosts has a work to do in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from every quarter upon her granaries. Pile her up like heaps of grain and devote her to destruction. Let nothing be left of her. Kill all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. A voice, they flee and escape from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, vengeance for his temple. This is the word of the Lord. Gracious Father, again for understanding of our history, knowing, Father, your wrath that falls, knowing your mercy, we give ourselves to you fully and pray that your word would be ensconced in our thinking, in our feeling, in our responding, in our actions, so that in all things we might please you. Oh, Father, we need to hear from you, and we know your Spirit will impress these things upon us, and we pray for it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, a theologian came up with the phrase, intrusion ethics. Now, he was speaking specifically about the actions of God. But if you had to take a second and just think about what he might be referring to, what might you come up with? Intrusion ethics. His point was that what we see in the Bible events of God's judgment that are historically real, that is, they happen just as the Bible said they did, but they also point to realities in redemptive history or in time that are much bigger than the event itself. So we see at any point in these judgments an intrusion of God's ethic, but the ethic that is intruding itself speaks of an eschatological or an end-time reality as much as it does a current event. Uh, the fall of our first uh, parents, historical fact, but also a picture of what is true for humanity, not only in Adam and Eve's choice to rebel, but even in our own. How many times can we go back to the garden to see not only what was true for Adam and Eve, but what is also true for you and me? True in the way sin and temptation work. The event is bigger than the historical moment. Or when it comes more specifically to intrusion ethics, what do we make of the flood? What are we to conclude about it? Or Sodom and Gomorrah. We see in these events the righteous judgment of God poured out upon the defiantly rebellious. Justice is seen in the moment, but perhaps we are to see something much greater than just the historical moment. We conclude that there is a justice coming at the end of the age that is pictured in the judgments God has brought to mankind in time. We could say the same for uh, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. One of the puzzles, and I'm sure many of you are aware of this, one of the puzzles in the Bible is trying to figure out in the Olivet Discourse, 
recorded in uh, Matthew 25 and Luke 21, what exactly Jesus is referring to. Some aspects of that discourse seem to be speaking of the fall of the city in AD 70. Other aspects of that discourse, and it moves in and out of these almost seamlessly, seem to be referring to his second coming. In the destruction of Jerusalem, there are overtones, foreshadowing of a much greater judgment that is yet to come. Well, the end of Jeremiah concerns the judgment of Babylon. And I'm sure that you notice the, the language, consisting of both poetry and prose, almost seems hyperbolic. At least it is colorful and very thorough. After Babylon's demise, the nation of Babylon, not unlike Egypt, becomes symbolic in redemptive history. It becomes symbolic for the kingdoms of man in rebellion against God. It becomes, Babylon becomes symbolic of man's arrogance and pride and the depth that man will sink to in his depravity. Most powerfully, we see this in the book of the Revelation. In Revelation chapter 17, the harlot who leads the whole world astray, we are told, who is drunk on the blood of the saints is referred to as Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and abominations. She, Babylon, is described as being beautiful, inviting, alluring. She is clothed as royalty. Even John, the apostle, when he sees her, knowing her evil, being fully aware of her wickedness, nonetheless he is so taken by her that he marvels at her beauty. He is taken captive by her, so much so that an angel has to bring him back to his senses and says to John, Why do you marvel? Do you not know her abominations? But of course, we all understand that, don't we? We know what sin is. We know if we were given a written test, we could write down where sin will take us. We know the answer. Nonetheless, often we stop and we stare and we marvel. Then in Revelation 18, we have 24 verses of apocalyptic poetry describing Babylon's fall and her destruction at the hand of God. In chapter 19, guess what the response is from the saints and angels in heaven at the destruction of Babylon, that is, at the destruction of that which represents the city of man in rebellion against God. We read there that the judgment of God falls upon the city, which is to say upon the whole world as man has corrupted it, and all of heaven rejoices. Oh, I hope that strikes you as a bit odd, rejoicing over judgment and the destruction of man, especially if you have been here throughout this study in Jeremiah. We have made the point on numerous occasions that God grieves over the sin of his people, and he even grieves over the sin and destruction of his enemies. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, we have noted on uh, many times the depth of Yahweh's compassion as well as the depth of Yahweh's grief. But in Revelation, there is rejoicing in heaven at the destruction of the enemies of God and His church. This seems to be incongruent. How do we make sense of God almost scolding His people in Jeremiah for not being grieved at the rebellion of man and God's wrath falling upon them? And then in heaven we find this eruption of joy over the destruction of his enemies. Again, how do we make sense of this? 
perhaps you would think, well, maybe this is just one of those times in the Bible where we see attention to truths and we are to embrace them both even though they seem at first glance to be contradictory. That could very well be the case. But also, could it be that in time, during man's life in the world, while there is still hope, the cry for repentance continually sounding, that the emotion over people's willingly wanting or desiring to choose to go, go their own way, that it is to be mourned so that people might wake up and see that it doesn't have to be this way. There is repentance, and the Lord stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to restore. That has been the message of Jeremiah for months and months now. For the people of Jeremiah's day, remember, for 40 years. But in the book of Revelation, where there is rejoicing over this destruction, in the book of Revelation there is no tomorrow. Repentance is not being held out. All things are concluded. And as perfect as God's mercy is, so perfect is His justice. And there in the Revelation, we are looking at final justice. And what is there for us to do but to praise God for who He is, to rejoice that God has vindicated His name, vindicated His people, and vindicated His Christ. But for the people of Jeremiah's day, the end of his scroll would have a a particular reality for the people of God, remember, in Babylon, in exile, who are, uh, well, waiting. Waiting for God to come. Waiting for the Lord to return them to their home. They must see themselves as a people with a past that is full of guilt, a present full of suffering, and a future full of hope. The people must come to terms with the consequences of their sin and the choices that they and their fathers had made. Now, th this is difficult. It is hard to get to the point in dealing with the consequences of our sin that we can be still and that we can be even at peace in the midst of those consequences. It's not easy. But we are to get there where we can say in the midst of consequences for our own actions, well... You do reap what you sow. I deserve this. In fact, I deserve far worse. So I will trust the Lord as he determines to give me the just consequences according to his wisdom and mercy. And that is what causes the suffering in the present. But it doesn't have to be the suffering of the nihilist, as though this is all there is. Life is nothing but a crapshoot, and I lost. No, it's suffering, but suffering with hope. Things will not always be the way they are. And because the future is ours, because the Lord has a plan for his redeemed, forgiven people, we can li live at peace and, dare I say, even live with joy in the, in the midst of it all. Even right now. Even this day. So the picture here as Jeremiah draws to a conclusion, is that of divine reversal. Babylon, exalting self, oppressing the people, will be destroyed and left without a home. Israel, the homeless exile slave, will be lifted up and taken back to her home. So we see this, uh, this reversal of fortunes between Israel and Babylon in chapter 50. Israel is referred to as lost sheep, verse 6. A scattered flock, verse 17. 
who have been devoured by great empires. Verses 17 and 18. Those nations imagined and even said, we read this, that Israel, all of this came upon Israel because she was guilty of sinning against the Lord their God. That's what the nations said of God's people. And they are correct. They are spot on. But if they thought themselves innocent of transgression, simply because Israel was guilty of transgression, well, now they're in for quite a surprise. You know, that is often the way it is. And, and not just with nations. I find this very interesting. We see these big principles applying to nations, but then we also find those same principles applying to individuals. We see someone reaping what they have sown. We see them perhaps at the end of their rope. Their lives begin to disintegrate. Consequences fall. And we might be correct in our conclusions. Well, that's what you get when you turn your back on your God. And we might be right in all of that. But should that then cause us to conclude that we are righteous? We watch someone reap what they have sown. Are we to then conclude that the principle of reaping and sowing doesn't apply to us, only to them? This is what leads to sanctimonious self-righteousness. It also leads us to being quite clueless about ourselves. Babylon sees rightly what is to be applied to Israel. But do they see what they deserve? Or is it just so much easier and self-justifying to point out everyone else's rebellion, hypocrisy, and foolishness? God's people, verses 8 and 16, need to be ready to go. Babylon is going to be destroyed by an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. Again, this is intentionally ironic that Babylon itself had been that great enemy from the north when they attacked Israel. Now they will suffer the same fate. What they had done to others, God is going to visit upon their own heads. Those who stand in everlasting covenant with God will move from judgment to forgiveness, while those who stand in flaunted rebellion against God will move from plundering aggression to utter desolation. And again, I find it quite interesting that we find God dealing with nations, groups of people, by the same principles that He deals with individual people. The Bible tells us that as we measure to others, so it will be measured to us. How we pass judgment on others will come back on our own head. How we refuse to forgive others will find ourselves not being forgiven by others. The easiest illustration of this is just with um, something that is so widespread as, as parenting. How you honor your parents is how your children will honor you. How they see you treat others here you speak of others will be manifest in their lives, even if they do not think it to be so. You treat others harshly and without mercy, then the Bible is quite clear that you should expect the same to come upon your own head. It is simply a law of life. Whatever you sow, you reap. As you measure, it shall be measured to you. Again, this is exactly what happens in the lives of individuals but in our text, it happens even to nations as a whole. Toward the end of chapter 50, Jeremiah draws on the Exodus as a source for its language, as in Egypt, 
Israel was held by a stronger nation that would not let them go, but the Lord, their Redeemer, is stronger still, and He will be their defender and their deliverer, just as He was in the days of Moses. Look at chapter 50, verse 44. This is a wonderful verse. Behold, like a lion coming up from the thicket of the Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make them run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan the Lord has made against Babylon. It, it might do well to commit that, that verse to memory, or at least to remember where it is and to refer to it often. Who is a God like your God? Seriously, who tells him what to do? Who instructs him? Who can stand before him? And you have this God as your father. So what is there for us to fear? Why are we afraid? What circumstance in your life is bigger than him? Stronger than him? More able to defend you than him? There is none. So we wait in faith. We wait trusting him until he is ready to tell you the plan he has made. That's what the exiles were doing. Lord, we are ready. Tell us when to go. Tell us when you're taking us home. When we get to chapter 51, the tirade against Babylon intensifies. If you look there, verse 5 makes clear that God is acting on behalf of his people for the sake, again, of the promises he has made to them. Yes, Babylon is correct that Israel has sinned, but no, they are incorrect to think that this means that Yahweh is done with them. The covenant people will be forgiven. But not just forgiven, they will be restored, as verse 19 says. They remain the people of his inheritance. Another aside, did you ever notice, and maybe if you haven't, notice as you read your Bible through this year, you ever notice that being forgiven and being restored go together? It's not forgiven and forgotten, not forgiven and then God says, now get out of my hair. No, it's forgiven and restored. Forgiven and then given purpose for God's glory. All you need to do is think about Christ's interaction, the resurrected Christ, with Peter at the end of John's Gospel. When Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And he forgives Peter. But what does he also do? But he restores him. He gives him back what he felt he had lost. As mentioned, there is language in verses 7 and following that makes make Babylon the, the image of the kingdom of men. The Lord says she has poisoned the whole earth, reverted back to her, her skyscraping arrogance like at the Tower of Babel. She's become like a volcano that would destroy the whole world, verse 25. But she would be destroyed because the earth is not hers. The earth is the Lord's. He is sovereign over all of creation, and all of man's ungodly ambition will not ultimately stand. Now we get to chapter 51, and we find the exiles speaking for the first time. If you would look at 51 at verse 34, and there we find, again, the exiles speaking. 51, 34, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. 
The violence done to me and to my kinsmen be upon Babylon. Let the inhabitants of Zion say, My blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Let Jerusalem say, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry, and Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant. They describe the experience of the deportation as if one was chewed up and swallowed by a sea serpent, and then they ask God for retribution. And God promises to do just that. In verse 44, to spew out what he has swallowed. It almost sounds a bit like Jonah. It then hints at death and resurrection. Once again, this is a picture which is bigger than it appears. This is cosmic imagery complete with a sea, a symbol of chaos, swamping Babylon like a tsunami, leaving nothing behind but desolation. As we see in the book of the Revelation, God will summons evil, but he will do so for its own destruction. There is no place, this is no place for the people of God. The exiles are to flee to Babylon, to go home, but they are to do so with no fear. And, and we can't ignore that. We can't run by that too quickly. To have no fear in the face of circumstances such as these takes faith and courage and hope and trust. To believe that there will be a home for us as God's people and to live boldly in the face of this world and all that it throws at us, to do so fearlessly is not as easy as it sounds. We are going to have to have faith, courage, hope, and trust. What has God said? Do our choices suggest that we believe what he has said? For the exiles, they had to wonder at the words Jeremiah had chosen. Again, this seems to be on a cosmic scale, for Babylon's sin is responsible for the slain of all the earth. Not only Israel's slain, but it's paralleled by the cosmic scale of rejoicing when Babylon falls. And the language, as I mentioned from Revelation 18, the language there borrows from Jeremiah extensively. And Babylon becomes a picture of the final defeat and destruction of evil, of everything that takes its stand against the people of God. So what happens? The word has been spoken and then written down. All that remained was for the exiles to hear for the last time the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, which was done by Sariah, the brother of Baruch, on a royal mission to Babylon with Zedekiah, as we see in 51:59. Look there, if you would. Jeremiah tells Sariah to do two things, or three things, rather. In chapter 51, beginning at verse 59, he says, The word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded Seraiah, the son of Neriah, son of Mahshiah, when he went with Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Seraiah was the quartermaster. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Seraiah, When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words, and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off, so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it, and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and say, Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more, because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So three things that they're told to do. 
Read the words of God and read them aloud. Pray the words. Say to God these words. Pray the words as a reminder to God of His own promises. And then perform a symbolic action so that it is demonstrated in word and action what God has promised to do. Now, we couldn't conclude this book more practically than that. Read, immerse yourself in the Word of God. Pray, pray the promises of God's Word. Make them your food and your hope. And in conclusion, let me say something about prayer. Have you ever thought of the fact that God had the first word and that God will have the last word? We live in a world in which God spoke and it came to be. Therefore, prayer actually begins not by speaking. Prayer begins by listening. God speaks, we listen, and then we speak. See, we might suppose that we are in charge of prayer, but we're not. God spoke, and we are required to enter a world of listening to what He has said. Author and pastor Eugene Peterson said that presumptuous prayer speaks to God without first listening to Him. If we pray without first listening, we pray out of context. So before you pray, ask yourself, what has God said? What is God saying? That is exactly what the exiles with Jeremiah's scroll ringing in their ears had to have been asking. They were in exile because of their sin. They were getting what they deserved, and they, they knew that. They owned that. So, Lord, what are you now saying? Deliverance? You're going to take us home? Trust? Faith? Courage? To love you? To love one another? Okay. We can do that. We can do that. Amen. Gracious Father, how many times do we speak before we listen? We pray that your word would resound in our hearts and minds, that we would dive more deeply into it, that we might know what you love, that we might know your ways, that we might know the Savior more deeply that our prayers then, not only reflecting that, would be more and more in accordance with what your purposes are for us, for the world. Help us, Father, to this, that we would be a people who read, who pray, and who rejoice in the gifts of the sacraments. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.